0: Welcome to the Talk Marketing Analysis for Life Sciences podcast with Covalent Bonds. I'm your host, Laura Brown, and I am Chief Effectiveness Officer here at Covalent Bonds HQ. In this podcast, we explore marketing and media analysis for life sciences, touching on topics from marketing data to our guests' biggest marketing failures and successes, because it is in learning from others that the magic happens. Hello and welcome to our next edition of the podcast. I am joined today by Dr. Paul Kippax from Malvern Panalytical. Um, Paul is... Uh, sector marketing director for the farmer and food division at Malvern and I'm really excited to have him with us today because Paul's got some great opinions that I'm looking forward to sharing with everybody so Paul thank you so much for joining us.
1: That's all right Laura and uh, (laughs) it's good to to chat with you again and yes many opinions let's see where that uh, leads us as we go through this
0: discussion. <laughs> and that, that that's what makes these so interesting. I love it when people have strong views. So please share them. So First of all, Paul, tell me a little bit about how you got into marketing, because I'm right in saying that you're not a marketer by background; you're a scientist, right?
1: Yeah, that's correct. So I've got a uh, a PhD in uh, physical chemistry. I was actually in a project looking at how uh, how to optimize ice cream production of all things. So I like I get gets pretty boring around the dinner table when it gets to uh, uh, to dessert with me. In fact, uh, my wife avoids ice cream. But yes, yeah, so I, I did that degree, and I got to the end of it, and I built a piece of equipment. I thought, you know, it would be. Really Really good to be in the analytical instrumentation uh, business, and a role came up at uh, what was Malvern Instruments at the time, what is now Malvern Panalytical, mm-hmm. and I applied and I got in, uh, and uh, and so I started as a technical specialist within the company, so it was directly relevant to the PhD that I would just done. And in a role like that, I was part of a team supporting the sales process. So, you're going out, listening to customers, trying to work out how to develop their methods, determine whether the product that I was a specialist for was relevant to their applications. And as part of that, I got the chance to go to a conference in the pharmaceutical sector looking at inhalation drug delivery. And I'm a secret needle phobic. So, you know, COVID vaccines (laughs) and (laughs) things like that have been a challenge to me, although I I support the vaccination. And I, I came back from from that buzzing with the idea that actually we could do something which could help with the development of these products. Um, Someone in the company listened to me and they went, you know what, we're looking at a project in that area. Do you want to join product management and help drive that through? And I never looked back and I was always thankful to that person for giving me the opportunity to step in. I ran the project around that, and as part of that, and I still remember the first meeting now, I was told, well, as product manager, you have to have a marketing plan, and you'll be working with an external agency, and I remember thinking, oh my goodness, how do you <laughs> spe- speak to marketeers? I'm a, I'm a scientist, not a marketeer, and uh, actually, they put me hugely at ease, uh, uh, the team we were working with, and I and suddenly realized the impact you could have through you know communicating effectively in all sorts of ways not just doing scientific presentations Mm -hmm. so that was my routine.
0: Oh and I love that because what it does is it highlights exactly what marketing should be because really marketing is not about pushing stuff out it's about listening to what the market needs and bringing that back into the company and then shaping everything so it's shaping something for the market and that's exactly what you did.
1: I, I, exactly. Actually, I read a recent article, because I've got director in my title, I I like to read HBR.
0: <laughs> it, it is so there great. Was a, there was, I love it too.
1: Well, yeah. They, There you go. Got to get the lingo right. And (laughs) it it, it was one that said uh, successful brands approach customers as users and not buyers. Mm -hmm. And and that really resonated with the, the way I approach things. What's important to me is how do I affect the life of the customer I'm working with? So that sounds a bit grand, doesn't it? But essentially... We're not interested in selling a solution if it doesn't fit a workflow, if it doesn't give a valuable outcome for the customer. And the communication then is all about, well, how do I map into that and encourage the connections that are relevant to the portfolio to the solutions that I'm talking about. And and so you're right, in many ways, the marketing approach is a direct link back to that experience of being a product technical specialist. But now you're saying, well, rather than on a one-to-one around a demo, how can you broaden that and then uh, connect to more customers where you have something to offer? So yeah.
0: yeah. Oh, I love it. I absolutely love it. So, Paul, tell me a little bit about that focus on the customer within Morgan. How do you go about making sure that you actually do know what they need and what they hear? What kind of processes do you guys use?
1: Um, so it, it starts with um, a team. We have a strategic marketing team. Their their role is to look out into the market, uh, understand something about how our solutions are used, and that I suppose we'll dig into data about our current uh, commercial activity. But first, start looking beyond that. So. It's very easy, for instance, as a product manager, you're interested in what the sales of this individual product, but that fits into a workflow and mm-hmm. it answers a question that is then supported by other elements in analytical or in the, in the science. And so that team look out into and go, well, what's happening? How are things are being used? And what do we therefore need to do to position what we do? So it starts with that engagement. It could be in conferences. It could be by doing webinars that pose questions rather than just giving answers. it it could be in engaging with key accounts and you know holding mini symposiums where we do present our solutions but at the same time we're asking questions and through those activities we go right okay what does that mean for the future of where we need to go and our messaging at the moment and so
0: exactly so let's just take a go back a little bit because you mentioned about the challenges with COVID about getting in front of customers so how did you guys pivot to start collecting this information
1: so we just like everyone else to a certain extent we had an active webinar program and we had the platforms that were supporting the, that webinar program we just sort of pivoted into that activity because all the events closed closed down mm-hmm. uh, the events themselves went virtual of course mm-hmm. but we found that there was a lot of people a lot of time on their hands and there was a lot of talk at the time about as we went into the pandemic you know oh there'll be webinar fatigue yeah people don't want to keep it and and that is something to watch out for but we didn't really experience that that there was actually almost like there was more time for people to spend time learning and engaging. And so we found that our attendance and registrations were staying at a very high level. And then other metrics we would then look at in terms of what's the response from customers? Are we getting you know the basics such as leads and marketing qualified leads and those coming through to sales opportunities? Are we seeing that pipeline? We would measure that, but Really, we never saw a drop-off in the, in the number of registration that, and that sort of general engagement that was a, occurring of our customer base. So that's something we pivoted to quite, quite quickly. Mm-hmm. The other thing we were very careful on was testing if events are moving virtual, what kind of approaches are they using to replace the face-to-face interaction that would occur? And that was something where we noted there were a lot where, as a vendor, as a, a supplier, you felt very isolated from the program and you weren't getting any chance for that interaction. But there are other platforms which were providing you know, networking opportunities and the chance to build beyond someone coming up to a virtual stand and asking for a brochure. I mean, those things, again, are, are important, but it's, the, it's also the number of conversations you're enabling. And some platforms got that right. Others, really, we found that we weren't really getting any chance for communication at all.
0: So. Yes. Yeah, so, so, do you think there's going to be a role for these going forward? Now that people are starting to go back to face to face.
1: Yes. I mean, I mean, and that's a challenge within our within Malvern Panalytical itself, as to uh, I mean, there was a lot of talk, wasn't there, during the pandemic about the n- new normal that we would have mm-hmm. to get used to. And in fact, I think people got fed up of thinking about the new normal. Just give me normal, but. <laughs> Actually, I mean, I'm I'm talking to you uh, from a workstation in the middle of my hometown, distant from my office. And I I think we've learned that, you know, the company has grown with a distributed workforce. When we look out into our customers, they are learning the same thing. So, for instance, I'm in the pharmaceutical sector. I think towards the end of last year, Sanofi made announcements as to, well, actually, our scientists come to the office on a need to interact basis if you've got something on a project where you need to be face-to-face or you need to be present in a lab, then go in. Otherwise, remote working's the norm. And so, yes, these, although we see that there's an interest in face-to-face and getting back to some normal human interaction and with all the body language in it and yeah. stuff that goes with it, I think the virtual platforms are, are here to stay, really.
0: How do you practically get that data from the team? Like, And which team do you work with internally that Builds that and monitor it just in case. So what I'm thinking about is if there's somebody listening who has not quite built out persona systems in their CRM or they're a marketing team about to start on this. Like what are things that you've learned that you're getting from um, the system that's been really valuable for you for doing your job?
1: Uh, what I get that's really valuable for me and my team in, in doing our job and they're always open to improvement is, I mean, the, the basics actually speak a lot, segment, sub-segment, uh, for instance. And then we have something which we call use environment or other people call, um, you know, workflow position. So Is this customer in in research or are they in manufacturing QC, for instance? It just tells you a lot about the likely requirements. For instance, pharmaceuticals, regulatory requirements differ between QC compared with early phase research. That then tells me something about the kind of questions the customer may come back to me with and therefore how, how we need to frame communication with them. If they're in QC, they're under pressure to release product there's an urgency associated with that compared with someone who's in R&D that has a much more open how do i understand this Product or drug mm-hmm. asset, or whatever it is, more widely. So, just that basic information captured helps us. And that can be done in a multiple way. I mean, a lot of the leads that we obtain or the first point of contact for customers will be through the website. And it's then, I mean, there's a whole team that looks at how do we optimize the data collection from the customer. So, it's a realistic taxonomy that helps us understand what they need without ending up with three pages of information to fill in because everyone's got a question you'd like to ask the customer. <laughs> you know, yeah, that, exactly. Yeah getting that balance right, and then having the means to test what's been input. And that goes through a, a team that then looks at the quality of that information, um, ensures that there's a it's populated in a way. Then if that turns into a, an, an opportunity for the commercial teams, there's enough information there for them to know, right, what is the customer actually doing and, where, and what are they looking for in terms of a solution scope? So there's a team that's engaged in that. And that team would... Would it be part of the, you know, if there isn't a strong buying need yet, they'll be then looking at the nurturing requirements around that, or they would be completing the information set that then is passed on to the commercial team. So there are a number of checks, but it starts with what information do you gather? And as I said, a lot of our leads come through the website. So it's in the in the form design and getting that right, really. I mean, okay, I, sure. it's always amazed me about how much work's done at that end, uh, mm-hmm. uh, because you can turn off customers very, very quickly mm-hmm. with complex asks and and, we, and of course if you're scientific by background you go oh the more I know about you the more I'll be able to offer you and and uh, yeah yeah you get dropouts
0: yeah definitely mm-hmm. so that's really interesting about the multiple teams that are all involved in this process around the CRM and the marketing automation system mm-hmm. how do you all communicate and how do you feed feedback so for example if the nurture program's aren't nurturing effectively who's responsible for feeding that back to the teams and who changes it Well, how does that work oh
1: now you're asking me to comment on stuff that is uh, i know exists but do i engage ah. uh, uh, fully with it What colour can i give to that i don't know go for it ask me a follow-on question and then well, yeah, what...
0: so, so my question is are you involved in that that like it sounds like you're not so how does how do you work with those teams to make sure that it's not siloed
1: the way that my team is a strategic marketing team, we sit in the sector part of our business, sensing what's happening, understanding the requirements, the messaging that may be used, and then we work with the marketing function that in Malvern Panalytical then to define right okay, if that's what we need to do, what does that look like in terms of campaign tactics? And then for that, how are we going to track the effectiveness of those campaigns? So that's held by a, a team that is in the in the front end of our CRM system in defining the, the scoring. The, yeah, so not only the taxonomy, yep. but the scoring approaches that apply. But that's not, I mean, I, I see the output, of the magic they do in tracking the number of interactions with our content and determining whether that's a, the degree of a sign of interest. We're also, engage in abm mm-hmm. we have an abm program that's running so we can sense for, in terms of uh, more general search activity and website activity where there's resolving interest within accounts and, and so there's an example of an interaction in that the strategic marketing function says well here are the areas we know are growing here are the companies engaged in that and then we work with the abm team who then develops up right here's the tracking that we're going to do And then we'll work with the web team and say, well, if you're working in those areas, here's the content that we expect to be consumed associated with that. And we'll also optimize the web content itself. And then we'll go, well, what are the keywords you see being used by that Mm -hmm. Right, We'll move that through. My view is that that's quite, and that's well known in terms of approaches, but it's informed by the strategic marketing group. But, of course, we've got search engine specialists and ABM specialists who are also knowing what the requirements of those approaches are. Yeah. And they're informing us as to the kind of information that they need as input that would help them doing their roles exactly. more effectively. So that's something that I've always thought is important. It is easy to be siloed. Sometimes the distraction of the teams that I work with is that I don't like silos. Just like the way I approach customers or the way I believe we should approach customers is we're in a partnership. What I offer adds value to their process. I'm not just selling an instrument. Mm -hmm. I'm enabling them to do something. If they can't do it with what we've offered, then actually, I want to understand why so we can make sure we don't do that again. So in working with other functions around the business, I invite them into the meetings and we get the exchange going as peers rather than, well, I've defined a marketing area I need to go to. Right, marketing, you determine what the tactics associated exactly. with that are. And to me, it's only it's only through making those connections that actually it allows me to resolve on my team members to resolve, well, what else do we need to bring to this in order to be more successful? So it very much mirrors the way that we all work with our customers, I think.
0: And exactly. And this is why I have always respected uh, Malvin Panalytical's approach, because it absolutely is customer driven. And you hear companies say that, but it's not. the company. Your company is built around that completely. And just the way you're talking is that demonstrating that. So it's very impressive. One thing I'd like to go into a little bit more detail is you talked about you engage with the output from some of the metrics and tracking that gets put in place. What does that output look like? Is that a meeting? Is it a report? And how actionable is that kind of information that you get?
1: Right. So let's start with the first part of that question. We have access to various dashboards. So we use Salesforce. um, Mm -hmm. uh, So within that, we can dig into detail all the way from what's happening in terms of the MQL and uh, and opportunity pipelines all the way through to what's happening in orders and, you know, one lost business. What's the impact? So that gives us a general data set that we can work with, and we can cut that in ways that then reflect where our campaign focus is. Mm -hmm. That gives us the pulse of the current business and gives us an idea of the pipeline that we're working with. So those dashboards are available, and as part of our monthly reporting cycle, we'll be looking at that data and determining, well, are we on track? Are we not on track? I mean, there are you know linking everything up from very, very early phase interaction through to an order. That is not always straightforward, and the systems are evolving to enable that. That would be our, mm-hmm. our end goal. But uh, as it is now, we can already see, well, what's happening with each of the solutions that are associated with a, an application area we're driving into. Are we seeing the response that we would hope to see? Mm-hmm. So is it actionable, was your, your next question? Yeah, I mean, um, uh, a lot of people say, <laughs> if you talk to my team, They would go, yeah, Paul, he's great at concepts, uh, actions and plans and that sort of thing. (laughs) I mean, the answer is uh, yes. And so in the tail end of last year, using the information we had in front of us, there were several sort of tactical pivots that we made to respond to the way the market was as it, as it was and the demand that we were seeing compared with where we thought it was. Mm-hmm. And and we're able to then see, all oh, right, the solution mix we're now seeing in terms of what's coming through the pipeline has changed as a, as a result of those, those pivots. And I suppose that's another thing I'd learn that, you know what, Predicting the future is an imprecise business uh, at best. Yeah. So always be prepared to pivot. And there are sometimes you have to make very tactical decisions in tr- response to the data, and that's okay. Um, yeah. But hold your, your vision in, in your head because you'll need to get back to it. Uh, don't allow the tactical. You know, nature of things to diffuse things so much that you can't see your way ahead anymore. But there are,
0: yeah,
1: it's a commercial business; it's got commercial needs. So, that's, so the answer is yes, it, it is actionable. And what's good it, uh, for me is to have the linkages into the marketing teams, both in terms of program management, uh, website management, and field marketing, to say, okay, this is what we can do, and to partner in defining a response.
0: Yeah, and you touched on a really important point there about um, making decisions on the data. Because really, data does not give you definitive answers; they just give you signposts, and then you use those within what the strategy is at the company to keep moving forward. And I I love that. That is a a very important point to make.
1: Well, that's and that that's one thing that I have to reflect on personally because there's an element where, to different degrees, people will either trust data or they trust their their guts you know their mm-hmm. instincts mm-hmm. in a situation and what i have to be careful of in the way that i interact with people or understand things that there's a point where i go my gut's enough <laughs> yeah and i need i need the people around me that go i oh, know the the data isn't pointing to that but then to me it's that actually the gap between the two can resolve what your action is and that's mm-hmm. what i really like so it isn't that only data speaks or an instinct isn't you know, and gut is it important. Actually, it's the combination of the two that allows you to resolve an action and can lead to innovation as well in the way you approach things. That's it. That's a view.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. And it is. I completely agree with you because you also see it in the fear that people have about the new marketing systems that come in and they see marketing automation that might take away people's roles. And actually, it's not. It's that, like you said, it's that combination of this just gives you the tools to be better at your job. But you need to be able to interpret what that's telling you and act on it.
1: It's, it's getting back to, you're right. And actually, that's the theme in the pharmaceutical sector. with uh, talk about AI and uh, machine learning approaches and things like that. People go, oh, mm-hmm. is that a risk to automation? Is that a risk to jobs? No. Uh, when we've talked to customers, and this is part of uh, the, what my team, we hear them going, actually, it will release us to do the work that we we're here to do in the first place because we were held back by having to collect all this data or having to align it ourselves and doing things like that, you're right in that the automation gives you access to data that you can interpret and propose a route forward and then allows you to test that, but it isn't telling you the answer necessarily or not always. Exactly.
0: exactly. And the other side of it that we see a lot is it also removes a lot of the emotion out of the marketing which we we see a lot in the scientific space where there's some skepticism often about what marketing t- can do but bringing that data can help you make decisions and have more credibility in those conversations do you find that internally?
1: yes but i was interested in what you said taking the emotion out of it i wonder whether there's also a challenge in in scientific marketing and going ah yes we not forgetting that element of emotion so Mm-hmm. I don't know it's, people say that when I when I talk they get that I'm quite passionate about the the company and what it does i think that the communicating that you know and and allowing that enthusiasm to set a direction is important too so yeah something i had to learn was that because i always went oh well wow, is this is this getting excited and uh, you know and less less precise is that really relevant in the way we approach things where's the do we have to be at- and you go well yeah so yes, it helps in that. In the end, we are a commercial business. The rubber hits the road. We have got to prove we're doing the right things and not just uh, fly in the dark. But uh, yeah. yeah,
0: well, there's two elements to this. There's the emotion of making marketing decisions internally, but there's also the emotion in the communicating and engaging with hmm. your customers, right? And I think one thing that's really important that we see a lot. And we hear in the language in our space, which is we're talking to scientists. It's different here. But people forget that scientists mm. are people and they make decisions on emotion in exactly the same way. And the fact that we have to be precise and accurate in our statements should be the same across any industry It's you know, it shouldn't be any different.
1: When people tell me uh, that oh, we're scientists, we've got to talk about data. I uh, Well, sit down. Why don't you ask the person that you're with, if you're doing an interview, uh, why they do what they do? And just go, mm-hmm. maybe go to the third why. Uh, okay, this one doesn't work with everyone, but a lot of people, you'll suddenly hit something. And I, I remember talking to one scientist in a, a large pharmaceutical company, and we were talking about a particular way of making tablets. And you can get caught up in the physical chemistry and things like that about how he mm-hmm. makes the tablets. And of course, we're going, I wonder whether our solutions are relevant to him. At the third why he said why he did it, which in his case was to do with the fact that he saw that the problems that doctors had in prescribing medicines to children, because the dosage forms were created for adults, and so the prescribing physician had to take a risk in deciding how do they shave apart a tablet in order to get the right dose in. And there was no support for that and often no insurance. They are taking a risk. And he saw that if he got this bit right, he could make it that they could design the product they needed in the hospital that they could give to the child and get the dose right. You go, wow. That is cool. Now, now that gives me a completely different view. Here's all this science in here and here's how we think about it. But actually the link is through to this and this is what drives this guy. And he got emotional about it so yeah he's deeply scientific and he is a great scientist and understands why he's doing it but what's his personal motive and there's personal motivation in anything even even if it's just i want to get enough of this project done so i can go home on friday and forget about work (laughs) you know it could be as basic as that or it could be more extensive in that i know that if i get this right i affect something that's really going to be quite amazing you know beneficial to society and access that and suddenly you go yeah data is important but there is an emotional definite and emotional side to science.
0: Oh Paul I love that and thank you for that anecdote because that really brings this conversation to a perfect close and it's made me quite emotional as well so I really appreciate it and uh, um, I do want to ask you one question because at the end of every podcast that we do we ask a question that our previous interviewee asked so Michael Allen, who's VP of Marketing at Metro, asked, what's the next big change for the scientific industry in establishing a personal connection with customers? Do you have a view on that?
1: Yes. So that was a, I, th- I felt that was a, a good question because it echoed, uh, in fact, it links back to some of what we were talking about. The next big change for me, it's that balancing face-to-face with remote not just jumping back and going, well, we'll access the the same paradigm or approaches that existed before the pandemic, because it's not going to happen. And then going, well, if that's what's going to happen, how do we create space mm-hmm. for our customers to engage more openly? And so very much, if you think about a webinar, it can be very much on broadcast mode. Mm-hmm. and Somehow we've now got to get the response that, I mean one of the sales team I was talking to recently said yeah we used to chat over a coffee with a customer and that's when I got all the general information and now when I'm in a remote situation it seems like we're on the train tr- tram tracks and we'll just discuss the thing that's happening and everyone wants to close the meeting down and right that's quite a challenge in marketing then if we're remote how do we make something where it isn't just uh oh, we're delivering this remotely and it's a set of train track then we'll get to the end of it how do you open up the space to build that rapport because of course it's in that that you're learning the context and you're able to refine the message that uh, yeah uh, and, and engage the customer and I, I'm i not sure that I don't know I'm open to other people who uh, listen to the to the podcast to come with answers I'm not sure we've got an answer to how to achieve that because humans we respond to things like body language and, you know, and eye contact and whether our hands are flying around when we're talking or they're in our back pockets. And we use those as signals and as to whether we can ask a deeper question and things like that. And it's hard remotely. Yeah. And I noticed there was one other scientific instrument company who has gone all the way to creating a virtual building where they could do demos and seminars and interact with mm-hmm. um, uh, equipment and things like that and you go well is that the the future that it's all to do with and of course that feels a bit cool we'll all be wearing headsets and hand gloves and that is it so almost replicating the physical experience and the presence virtually although yeah. that feels quite expensive but you go go for it <laughs> is that it or is there something else and yeah, I think I- that's a a challenge
0: yeah, exactly, and I saw a great example the other week of um companies using holograms, so you have these um like pods, and they had them at conferences uh, where people couldn't travel, and the pod came up and it literally projected a CEO of the company into the room, and the pod acts as a speaker as well, so they can hear the conversation and it's literally like they were in the room, and it oh, was wow. incredible so uh, there are some fascinating things but again it's going to be like cost obviously and feasibility of these but i think this is going to be a really interesting place to watch
1: and of course you can go to very very low tech uh which is you know things like uh was it google cardboard was that there where you uh end up being able to put your <laughs> your mobile phone in front of your eyes and look like you're and i mean and uh that sounds wacky, but there are all sorts of opportunities around marketing uh, and branding of that that you could tell. And you wonder, oh, well, could that be the way we do it? And uh, we'll suddenly be a bunch of people spending even more time staring at our phones. But yeah, in exactly. all justice, that part of it, we looked at our webinar programs. In uh, we, we were intrigued that people in India were logging on to them very, very late. When we then look at what they're logging on to, they're uh, watching it on their mobile devices, probably from home. Yeah. You know, so. Well, what does that mean? Is there something we learn from that? Oh, so. I love it. In Melbourne Panalytical, we we've just released our company video and mm-hmm. within it, you know, we're amazed at the impact that we have. So how do you communicate, uh, include that as part of the communication? We're not just in it. We, you know, we do want to sell instruments. We do want to sell services, but it, it's broader than that. And how, how can you engage in that part of the messaging that there's a deeper drive here as to what we want to achieve without it becoming a bit like, you know, greenwashing? Uh, yeah. Um, uh, so how much how do you get the mix right? How do you communicate that because increasingly differentiation isn 't going to be through spec points on a on an instrument uh, In fact, I wonder whether those days are dead already yeah, yeah. Uh, I remember when I was a product manager first, it was arm wrestling over whether. My particle sizing system could go down to thirty nanometers, whereas that one over there claims it's twenty. So they must be better. And you go, no, that's that's just pointless. There's, there's another reason why I'm here, and how do you get that across effectively, but not in a way that's just wash? Yeah, that says, oh look, we're more we're interested in a bigger picture. Oh, well, well done, everyone. Everyone says that, and to me, it is the use of that that em- emotion and engagement bit. There was a marketeer that I read a lot of books from, and I've recently heard him in a podcast with Simon Sinek.
0: Yes, I was about to say that.
1: (laughs) And – it's a guy called Seth Godin. And everyone laughs that I mention his name because he's a he, he looks like a, a proper marketeer. And yeah. uh, one day I'll look like that too. <laughs> he always talked about talking to your tribe and it's the people who get you who are the people you should talk to. And that then, people who get you, isn't just that they understand that the product you have could, you know, has a specification that fit. People that get you understand your approach to things. Mm -hmm. and that's the people that you stay with and people who don't get you how much do we need to worry uh, ourselves about that so the the question is in there (laughs) and uh, I'll direct anyone listening to this Seth Godin's books uh, there were two there's tribes but then there was one about your personal approach to things which was linchpin I go back to them and I read them again and again and uh, people go yeah you really are a marketeer not a scientist (laughs) now but I think it says a lot about you know engagement
0: yeah absolutely and just going back to the simon sinek um uh mention as well because he summarizes it absolutely perfectly and he said people buy um that people don't buy what you do they buy why you do it and that is exactly what you have been describing through this whole thing and it is one thing that has really impressed me both of you and malvin panalytical you you guys are getting this right and um I just want to say well done and it's uh, been a pleasure to have you on the podcast today. So thank you so much, Paul. I really appreciate it.
1: Well, thank you, Laura, for this uh, opportunity. And you've put a smile on my face in saying that. And I hope that the people listening uh, can take something from that. You know, in the end, their inner passion is important in, in marketing and it, alongside, you know, data is important. Being able to understand where your customers are in the buyer's journey is important. But, you know, the bit that you bring that's unique to it is uh, what you and your company uh, holds as its vision. And I uh, think customers are interested in that, just like we're interested
0: in our customers. Oh, what a perfect place to end. Thank you so much.